Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 30 p.m. and 7.30 a.m. You are listening to Radio I, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio I. For further information about this service, please call 859-422-6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye. Welcome to the reading of the Courier Journal for Tuesday, February 14th, 2023, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Angie Mims. We start with the weather forecast through Sunday from the WHAS 11 First Alert Storm Team. Today, high 62, clouds increase. Tonight, low 55, windy with rain likely. Wednesday, high 71, low 58, breezy and mostly sunny. Thursday, high 65, low 29, strong storms early. Friday, high 38, low 25, cool and full of sun. Saturday, high 48, low 35, mostly sunny. And Sunday, high 56, low 46, mild and bright. The local forecast from Sam Gabrielli, staff meteorologist. Plan on clouds to increase throughout Valentine's Day with temperatures hovering well above normal. Showers will develop this evening and linger into tonight. Spring air arrives Wednesday, 70s likely. Storms, some severe, move in Wednesday night into Thursday. A brief cool down comes our way Friday into Saturday before we begin to ramp up temperatures nearing late February. The Almanac for Louisville through 4 p.m. Monday. Temperature high 63, low 31. Normal high 48, normal low 30. Record high 77 in 1962. Record low 10 below zero in 1899. Precipitation for 24 hours through 4 p.m. Monday, zero inches. Month to date, 0.15 inches. Normal month to date, 1.41 inches. Year to date, 5.51 inches. Normal year to date, 4.8 inches. Snowfall, 24 hours through 4 p.m. Monday, 0 inches. Month to date, 0 inches. Normal month to date, 2.1 inches. Season to date, 5.9 inches. Normal season to date, 9.2 inches. Air quality, yesterday, moderate. Today, moderate. Sun and moon, Tuesday, Sunrise, 7.35 a.m. Sunset, 6.20 p.m. Moonrise, 2.29 a.m. Moonset, 12.08 p.m. Wednesday, Sunrise, 7.35 a.m. Sunset, 6.21 p.m. Moonrise, 3.41 a.m. Moonset, 12.57 p.m. 
Moon Phases, New Moon, February 20th. First Quarter, February 27th. Full Moon, March 7th. Last Quarter, March 14th. Weather History On Valentine's Day in 1940, a storm in New England brought snow that embraced the northeastern quarter of the nation. Now for Tuesday's headlines. He lost his life. She lost her vision. They found each other and fell in love. Joy After Darkness by Maggie Mendersky. Misty Montgomery remembers locking eyes with Chris on their first date. They were both too nervous to eat and instead picked at their food and just gazed at each other. Rationally, she knew it was much too soon to tell. But in those first moments, she felt like she was staring at her husband and her future. She never could have seen that just four years before. Misty wasn't born with the corneas that helped her see Chris's warm, kind, dark eyes. In 2005, she was diagnosed with a rare waterborne parasite in her eye called acanthamoeba that slowly and painfully took away her sight. She went from being an independent college student who supported herself to hiding from the smallest flickers of light in her parents' home. Her father put fleece blankets under the blinds to block out the sun, and she wore the darkest sunglasses. Something as small as a light on a DVD player brought her excruciating pain. Misty couldn't build a career or even go on a date while she was homebound suffering from this rare disease. If she ever gave birth, she could hold her baby in her arms, but she'd never see her child smile. In those moments, it felt like her life was over. Having a butterfly-filled dinner like the one she was having with Chris four years later was out of reach. When Chris thinks back on that first night in 2010, he tells almost the same story as Misty does. He barely ate whatever the server at Caraba's Italian Grill brought him, and he remembers taking her to see the movie Inception, but the plot was completely lost on him. He was just thrilled to be sitting next to her. Mutual friends encouraged him to ask her out, but Chris didn't think he was much of a catch. He was 14 years older than her and had three young children. Chris hadn't been on a date since his wife Tracy died suddenly from a brain aneurysm in 2006. He was lonely and fatherhood was difficult as he tried to manage things like potty training his youngest on his own. His personal life took a back seat as he tried to be a mom and a dad for Lily, one, Maddie, three, and Ryan, five. I needed to make sure that I took care of them and that their needs were met instead of mine, he said. It's a strange feeling. You do feel this guilt. Both Misty and Chris had survived heartbreak separately before they settled into that table together in 2010. Misty lived through eight months of grueling tests, isolation, and agonizing treatments before the doctors finally removed the parasite. The whole ordeal left her with a white, film-like scar over the front of her eye, and her vision was gone. When her doctor suggested a cornea transplant, she didn't feel worthy of one. Misty had signed her organ donor card when she was 16 years old, but she told her mother at the time that her eyes were the one thing she didn't want to give away. Now she was asking for someone else's cornea tissue. As the day of her surgery grew closer, she couldn't shake the feeling the person who was helping her was about to die. Cornea recipients are usually matched with donors that are about their age, and Misty was young. That weighed on her too. No matter who gave her that tissue, it would come from someone whose life was cut short far too soon. It's a strange feeling, she explained. It's something that I don't think a lot of recipients probably talk about. But you do feel this guilt, like what's happening somewhere else? Four years later in that restaurant, Misty got a glimpse at just what that somewhere else could look like, and it was Chris. Ryan, Maddie, and Lily. Chris's wife collapsed at work and never woke up. 
The doctors did everything they could, but he had to make the tough decision to take her off life support. Even amid the heartbreaking grief, he thought about what Tracy's death could bring to someone else. His wife's organs saved seven lives and her cornea restored sight to two others. Chris never could have imagined that four years later, when his grief had finally calmed enough to ask someone on a date, that the woman staring lovingly back at him would have such a heartfelt appreciation for that decision. Misty's own cornea transplant surgery was rescheduled three times because there wasn't young tissue available. Eventually, she received a donation from the Rocky Mountain Lions Eye Bank in Colorado. Her donor was just 30 years old. The day after Misty's surgery, doctors took the patch off her eye, and while she couldn't make out details yet, she was able to read the largest E on the eye chart in front of her. Oh my gosh, I can see, she cried. But amid the excitement and the hope, Misty couldn't stop thinking about the donor and their family. She was getting a second chance at a full and happy life while someone else somewhere must have been hurting. There aren't many days that go by that I don't think of them, she said. I always wonder who they were, what they had seen with this eye. Over the next year, doctors slowly removed the stitches from her eye, and as her new cornea took hold, the world around her became even more clear. Misty could hold her head up without any pain, and her appetite returned. She started noticing the details on blades of grass, individual leaves on trees, and the ways that sunset glowed. Her niece had been a newborn when the acanthamoeba attacked her eye, and now she could see the bright toddler the little girl had grown into. She went back to work, first at an eBay store helping people sell things, and then later at the Eye Bank of Kentucky. When a friend asked her to help coach a cheerleading program at a nearby church, she met five-year-old Lily Montgomery and her father. She had heard the family's story before, and she even remembered praying for them at the request of a friend. She often sat behind Chris and the children at church, and she always made a point to say hello to them. Eventually, they both volunteered to teach vacation Bible school, and Lily was in her class. All these years later, she still says Lily was the first Montgomery she ever loved. When Chris finally got the courage to ask her on a date, they both felt a natural click and over the next few weeks, everything changed for both of them. On their second date, Chris shared that his wife had been an organ donor, and Misty saw a caring generosity that maybe someone who hadn't gone through a transplant wouldn't have seen. By the third date, he was asking her what time of year she wanted to get married. The spring sounded nice, she said. She wanted everything to look green the kind of man I want. They were married on May 28, 2011, and she saw the church doors open and Chris beaming and crying at the end of the aisle waiting for her. Ryan was his best man, and Lily and Maddie were flower girls. Their son, Sam, was born the following year, and eventually, Misty adopted the other children, too. That's what Chris loves most about Misty, her endless ability to give, and her loving heart. She married me, but really, she married all of us, Chris said. And while there are plenty of things that Misty adores about Chris, what sticks out to her more than anything is his selflessness. He put his own life on hold to focus on his children when Tracy died, and amid all of that, he found the strength to help someone just like her. This man, at the worst time of his life, when his wife suddenly died, when he's left with these three babies, he said yes to organ donation, Misty said. This is the kind of man I want, somebody who is so selfless that in their darkest hour, they think of what good can come out of it, and that's what he did. Editorial note. Features columnist Maggie Mendersky writes about what makes Louisville, Southern Indiana, and Kentucky unique, wonderful, and occasionally a little weird. 
If you've got something in your family, your town, or even your closet that fits that description, she wants to hear from you. Say hello at mmenderski at couriergjournal.com. That's M-M-E-N-D-E-R-S-K-I at courier, C-O-U-R-I-E-R hyphen journal, J-O-U-R-N-A-L dot C-O-M. Or call 502-582-4053. That number again is 502-582-4053. Join the Kentucky Organ Donor Registry or update your registration here. www.registermekentucky.org And that's spelled R-E-G-I-S-T-E-R-M-E-K-Y dot O-R-G. Next, break-in preceded officer's deadly shooting. Case first under protocol set after Taylor death by Billy Copen. On November 19, 2020, Louisville Metro Police received a report of a man breaking into an Irish Hill home, stealing a key fob, and then returning to take the owner's silver 2019 Honda HRV from the garage. Three days later, an LMPD officer would shoot and kill Brian Bam Thurman in the stolen vehicle following a traffic stop across the city in Portland. The shooting was the first case featuring an LMPD officer firing a weapon that Kentucky State Police investigated. As part of new protocols, then Mayor Greg Fisher announced that year, following the controversial police killings of Breonna Taylor and David McAtee. And though some observers may have expected potentially more consequences for the officer, as an outside agency rather than LMPD took over the probe into the shooting, Investigators and prosecutors ultimately viewed his decisions that night as justified. Neither state police nor LMPD released details about the shooting since 2020. But last month, the Courier-Journal obtained the case recordings and findings via an open records request. The incident, which occurred about 10.15 p.m. on a Sunday in the 2100 block of Gilligan Street, ended with Officer Harry Jimmy Cedars, who is white, shooting Thurman, also a white man, after Thurman put the stolen vehicle in reverse and struck Cedars as the officer stood behind it during a traffic stop, records show. Thurman, 49, died at University of Louisville Hospital a short time later from three gunshot wounds to the back. About 16 months later, the office of Jefferson Commonwealth's attorney, Tom Wine, determined Cedars acted lawfully that night after considering evidence gathered during the KSP-led investigation. At the time that Officer Cedars discharged his weapon, he perceived a real and substantial threat to his life. First Assistant Erwin Roberts wrote on behalf of Wine in the March 16, 2022 letter to Sergeant Gabe Welch with the State Police Critical Incident Response Team. All the evidence contained in the investigation indicates that Officer Cedar's actions were consistent with the laws of self-protection in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Cedars had no prior record of discipline and had received several commendations before the 2020 shooting. He eventually quit LMPD in October 2022 and lost his law enforcement certification after he was found guilty of distributing sexually explicit images of a woman without her consent. He also faced a domestic violence charge in June 2021 along with other domestic assault cases going back to 2009, though some were dismissed or expunged. So what happened before, during, and after the November 22, 2020 shooting? Here's a summary based on a review of hundreds of pages of interviews, reports, and photos, and several hours of body camera videos. A Roland Stolen a resident on Spring Street in Irish Hill contacted LMPD on November 19, 2020, about a burglary and the theft of her Honda HRV's key fob, with the suspect returning to steal the vehicle. On November 22, 
about five miles from Irish Hill, Cedars was at Boone's gas station on 22nd Street in Portland after 10 p.m. He was picking up an energy drink for the rest of his 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift when he noticed a silver Honda HRV outside the station. The engine was running, but no headlights or taillights were on. Inside his LMPD vehicle, Cedars ran the license plate through the National Crime Information Center and confirmed the Honda was reported stolen. Cedars, who was 30 at the time and had, and had been with LMPD since 2018, followed the Honda without turning on his flashing patrol lights and reported it over his radio as a Roland stolen as it headed south on 22nd Street for more than a block before turning east on Gilligan Street and stopping behind several homes. Stop! 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 With the Honda stopped in front of him, Cedars turned on his patrol lights and exited his car. He noticed a female passenger in the front seat next to the driver, Thurman. Let me see your hands, Cedars shouted as he drew his Glock pistol and stood facing the driver's side of the Honda while also relaying details over his radio. His backup had not arrived yet and LMPD's standard operating procedures say two units should generally respond to a traffic stop for the safety of officers and the public. Cedars later told state investigators he didn't want to have people fleeing, me chasing, me doing multiple uh, different variations of scenarios um, until my backup arrived. So by me keeping him in the vehicle, I sort of have the threat neutralized other than the fact that I can't see their hands. After about 25 seconds of not responding, Thurman opened the door and showed two empty hands. Cedar told him to stay in the vehicle, turn it off, and remove the keys. But Thurman closed the door and the female passenger soon got out, resulting in Cedars moving toward the other side of the vehicle to tell her to stay inside the Honda. Then body camera footage showed the Honda's reverse lights turned on and the vehicle moved toward Cedars, pushing him back as he slapped the back window and yelled, stop, stop, stop. The body camera on Cedar's shoulder came loose and pointed to the ground when the Honda hit him, but the officer told investigators as he started to lose his footing, I was in fear for my life at getting run over. He fired five times through the rear passenger side window at Thurman with three shots striking the man. Cedars took cover behind a tree and his backup arrived about 30 seconds later with officers eventually pulling Thurman from the vehicle and performing CPR until an ambulance arrived. As a group of protesters formed near the scene, LMPD personnel began canvassing the neighborhood to interview residents, trying to determine where the female passenger had fled. I'm not going down like this. LMPD used online records such as surveillance images and a Facebook profile to determine the female passenger's possible identity in the hours after the shooting, with her stepfather confirming she had gone inside her home near the shooting scene. The next morning, the woman agreed to speak with a KSP lieutenant and LMPD sergeant for nearly an hour at the Public Integrity Unit office. The Courier-Journal is not naming the woman as she was not charged in connection with the shooting. After initially describing Thurman as a man she had only met that night, the woman admitted he was like a brother and she had called him that night for a ride to a McDonald's across the street from Boone's gas station. Knowing Thurman had struggled with drug use and suspicious of where he obtained the Honda, the woman said she asked, Did you steal, Bam? Please don't lie to me. Please. No, I swear I didn't, she said Thurman replied. After she brought, bought food for herself at McDonald's and cigarettes for Thurman at Boone's, the woman said Thurman, who was acting kind of skittish, mentioned the police car following them and admitted the Honda was stolen. She told Thurman to take her home, and once they stopped outside the multi-unit building on Gilligan Street with the police car behind them, Thurman nudged her outside and said, I'm not going down like this. The woman also recalled Thurman, a convicted felon, saying he didn't want to ever go back to prison again. I yelled stop, she told investigators. 
I knew he was getting ready to run the man over. She took cover behind a nearby parked car as Thurman put the Honda in reverse and Cedars fired. She then had a neighbor let her inside her home after banging on the side door. Officers found a loaded revolver under the driver's seat inside the Honda, along with several grams of meth and marijuana. Though some policing experts in interviews with the Courier-Journal after the shooting questioned the officer's decision to position himself behind the Honda before his backup arrived and shoot at it, Cedars told investigators he handled the situation as it was given to me. I firmly believed that I did everything to the best of my knowledge, said Cedars, a military veteran. I handled the situation with um, the best of my training, the best of my tactics, the best of my knowledge. Next, U.S. Jews report growing fear amid anti-Semitic incidents. This weekend, it was my turn to be targeted. Unfortunately, it's not the first time to be afraid as a Jew in the United States. State Representative Esther Panich, Democrat, Georgia, denouncing flyers distributed in suburban Atlanta this month. More than four in 10 Jews in the United States feel their status in America is less secure than it was a year earlier, according to a new survey by the American Jewish Committee. The survey, conducted in the fall of 2022, was released Monday by the AJC, a Jewish advocacy organization. The survey was taken in a year of high-profile incidents of anti-Semitism, including a hostage-taking at a Texas synagogue and anti-Jewish statements shared by celebrities on social media. According to the AJC survey, 41% of the respondents said the status of Jews in the U.S. is less secure than it was the year before, while 55% said it was the same. Only 4% thought it was more secure. The results show anxieties increasing since a comparable survey in 2021, when 31% of respondents thought their status was less secure than a year earlier. Four in five Jews said in the 2022 survey that anti-Semitism had grown in the past five years. Nearly half said it's taken less seriously than other forms of bigotry or hate. A quarter of the respondents said they were directly targeted by anti-Semitic expressions, either in person or on social media, with 3% reporting a physical attack. Nearly four in 10 changed their behavior to lower risks to their safety. Similarly, nearly 4 in 10 reported avoiding visible expressions of Jewishness in public, such as wearing a skullcap. Smaller percentages reported taking similar steps on campus or at work. Other findings. Nearly 90% of U.S. Jews, and the same percentage of the country's total population, believe anti-Semitism is a serious problem, up from 73% in 2016. Of the Jews surveyed in 2022, 63% said that they see law enforcement as appropriately responsive when it comes to anti-Semitism, a substantial drop from 2019 when that number was 81%. The survey collected data from a nationally representative sample of 1,507 adults of Jewish religion or background. It was conducted from September 28th through November 3rd. News of anti-Semitic incidents surfaces almost daily in the U.S. Earlier this month, for example, numerous anti-Semitic flyers were distributed in, in suburban Atlanta, including at the home of Georgia's only Jewish state legislator. Representative Esther Panich, a freshman Democrat, denounced the flyers from the floor of the House of Representatives, with dozens of colleagues surrounding her to show solidarity. This concludes readings for the first sections of the Courier-Journal for Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. Stay tuned for the Metro section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Angie Mims.
Now to continue reading from the Courier-Journal for Tuesday, February 14th, 2023, starting with the Metro section. Your reader is Daryl Heckman. We will start with the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I will repeat that number at the end of the listings. Belva Victoria Robinson Ashby, 89, Hanover. Helen June Beck, 89, Louisville. Vincent Morris Bayer, 92, Sellersburg. Dr. Judith Ann Judy Burkhead, 79, Louisville. Grayson Bledsoe, 83, Louisville. Bradley Lawler Bogue, 73, Munfordville. Mary Frankie Francis Bowman, 70, Bardstown. Grace Geraldine Boyd, 96, Livermore. Bruce Wayne Brewer, 68, Salem. Elizabeth May Brooks, 59, Charlestown. Joe W. Bush, 94, Brownstown. John W. Billy Compton, Jr., 71, Glasgow. Judy Courtier, 75, Tompkinsville. Doris June Hatfield Kraft Tenney Nichols, 85, New Albany. Ernest Crow, 82, Tompkinsville. Mary Davison, 68, Central City. Bryce Richard Edebum, 42, Louisville. Thomas Bartrand Givan, 96. Joseph Goodwin, 67, Hazard. Florine Gray, 83, Barberville. Meredith Smythe Grider, 88. Francis Frank J. Hartledge, 89, Louisville. Kathy Kim Hickok, 67, Muldrow. Stephen Heider, 52, Liberty. Roy Jackson, R.J. Howard, 84, Glasgow. Eva Joyce Jennings, 84, Pleasureville. Sylvia P. Kiefer, 72, Scottsburg. Walter the Blues Man Niece, 60, Stanford. Ronald Curtis Leslie, 86, Shepherdsville. Barbara Ann McCarty, 55, Ekron. Janice L. Hankins McClure, 85, North Vernon. Patricia Ann Patsy Mick, 85, Bardstown. Ingrid Milliner, 78, Hillview. Rondall Butch Minyard, 68, Brownsville. Walter Joseph Joe Proctor, Jr., 87, New Albany. Mary Jane Reevely, 72, Louisville. John W. Jack Sagabile, 90, Bowling Green. Helen Sharp, 92, Campbellsville. Lawrence Schaller, Jr., 69, Corydon. Deborah Lynn Stames, 72, Paoli. Anna Jane Elmore Walker, 77, Greensburg. Richard Williams, 69, Richmond. And David Leslie Young, 68, Turner Station. If you would like further information about any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire item to you. Kentucky Chef Vies for Cooking Crown popular chef from Paducah, Kentucky, and the runner-up on season 16 of Top Chef, is ready to jump back into the frying pan. We first met Chef Sarah Bradley when she was a contestant on season 16 of Bravo's Top Chef. The award-winning television host series, hosted by Padma Lashkimi, spent two months in Kentucky in 2018. Now Bradley is back for seconds. She signed on to compete in season 20 as Top Chef heads overseas to England and France. The epic showdown marks the first time the flagship edition of Top Chef has gone abroad for an entire season. Winners and finalists representing 11 different Top Chef versions around the world will vie 
for the Ultimate World All-Stars title as the show travels throughout London, England, and holds the finale in Paris, France. Lakshmi will be joined on the global stage by judges Tom Colicchio and Gail Simmons, plus numerous distinguished judges from international versions of Top Chef. In case you were wondering, there are 29 international versions of the show. When Top Chef filmed in Kentucky, Bradley and her fellow chef-testants traversed the Bluegrass State, competing in various popular Kentucky spots like Churchill Downs, Keeneland, Rupp Arena, Muhammad Ali Center, Fox Hollow Farm, Sealback Hotel, and Maker's Mark Distillery. Bradley finished season 16 in second place, and her instant celebrity turned into instant popularity for her freight house restaurant in Paducah, Kentucky. We're seeing people coming in from Louisville, Lexington, and Cincinnati, Bradley told the Courier-Journal previously. We're closer to Nashville than Louisville and St. Louis than Louisville. So we're seeing people from all over the region come, and it's been really amazing. What's expected from Season 20 of Top Chef? The winning chef of Season 20 will be crowned Top Chef World All-Star, taking home the grand prize of $250,000 provided by the Saratoga brand, a feature in Food & Wine, and an appearance at the 40th Annual Food & Wine Classic in Aspen. The new season of Top Chef premieres March 9th at 9 p.m. on the Bravo Channel. The entire sizzling season of supersized episodes will air Thursdays from 9 to 10.15 p.m. Episodes will be available the next day on Peacock. Massive Farm Show crops up this week. A showcase for the latest agricultural innovations. The Kentucky Exposition Center is once again set to host the largest indoor farm show in the country later this month. Agriculture means business in the Bluegrass State, according to release from David S. Beck, President and CEO of Kentucky Venues, and attendees of the National Farm Machinery Show, which draws about 250,000 people a year, can take it in the latest equipment, attend seminars, and network with colleagues in the agribusiness industry over four days. The National Farm Machinery Show will take place at the Expo Center from February 15th to February 18th, with several events planned over the course of the first three days, capped off by Saturday's Tractor Pull Finals. This will be the 57th iteration of the event, Beck said. There will be more than 900 exhibitor booths that will showcase the latest innovations in agriculture equipment and techniques to help jumpstart the 2023 planting season. The farming industry is constantly changing, and trade shows are an important way to stay on top of the fast-paced evolution of trends and technology, Beck said in the release. Here's a quick guide on how to attend the National Farm Machinery Show. Where is the Farm Machinery Show? The National Farm Machinery Show will be held at the Kentucky Exposition Center, located at 937 Phillips Lane, from February 15th to February 18th. The show floor will be open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. daily, and the gift and craft market will be open from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. daily. How can I get tickets to the National Farm Machinery Show? Admission and attendance to seminars are free, but attendees will have to pay for parking. Passes can be purchased on the show's event gate. Standard pass at the gate, $12.00. RV bus pass, $25, in-out pass, $15. Two-day in-out pass, February 17th only, $30. Three-day in-out pass, $45, February 16th only. Four-day in-out pass, $60, February 15th only. What can I do at the National Farm Machinery Show? After attendees check out the 900 booths on the floor, they can attend the championship tractor pull, which is partnering with the National Farm Machinery Show to host drivers going head-to-head -head in an action-packed showdown in Freedom Hall, said the release. The event draws around 70,000 attendees each year who cheer on their favorite drivers as they compete for a national title and a piece of $300,000 in prizes. Tickets for the tractor pull are $10 and can be found on the event's webpage. In addition to the tractor pull, there will be shopping at the Gift and Craft Market in the South Wing mezzanine, Beck said. There will be booths with tractor-branded merchandise, fashion, toys, collectibles, snacks, and other goods. The schedule for the free seminars can be found on the event's webpage. Fun set for more license tag cameras. Devices help police find stolen vehicles. More license plate cameras that police and officials say will help track down stolen vehicles could soon come to Louisville's East End. Louisville Metro Councilman Anthony Piagenti, Republican 19th District, put forward $48,150 from his district's Capital Improvement Fund to allow Louisville Metro Police to purchase nine flock safety cameras in his district that includes East End cities and neighborhoods such as Middletown, Douglas Hills, and Lake Forest. The solar power motion-activated cameras from Flock Safety, an Atlanta-based company, take pictures of license plates and other identifying features of every vehicle. From a laptop, these stamped images can be pulled up from 
of each vehicle's make, model, color, and license plate. The Louisville Metro Council Budget and Appropriations Committee approved the two-year contract for the camera-related spending during a Thursday hearing. Pending any additional amendments or objections from members, the item will get approved via the consent calendar at the February 16th Council meeting. Piagentini's legislative assistant, Chanel Smith, told council committee members four of the cameras will go in Middletown and the other five will get spread throughout the district, which is home to LMPD's 8th Division. Smith said a homeowner association in the Middletown area requested the cameras and that Piagentini's office saw a benefit after talking with LMPD. Piagentini told the Courier-Journal his district has seen upticks in property crime and a lot of that is perpetrated by people using stolen vehicles. This is just an additional tool in the toolbox to give law enforcement both broad-based intelligence on where people are going and using the stolen vehicles and being able to react to that information. And then the other part of it is for immediate response, Piagentini said. Here's more to know about the cameras. How does LMPD use license plate reader cameras? Major Emily McKinley with LMPD's Administrative Service Division said the cameras are not for traffic enforcement and not the same as red light cameras, which are currently not allowed in Kentucky. McKinley said images of license plates are run through the National Crime Information Center to determine if vehicles have been reported stolen. LMPD can also use camera footage to try to track down vehicles that may have been involved in other crimes. How many license plate leader cameras are in Louisville? McKinley said 123 plot cameras are located throughout Louisville, not including additional cameras in suburban Jefferson County cities or in private neighborhoods. In the past month, the flock cameras identified over 200 stolen vehicles in the city, she said. McKinley said the cameras started getting deployed in Louisville the past six months or so, with full implementation still in progress. The flock cameras are on small, thin, black poles owned by the company, but McKinley said some are also attached to LG&E or Spectrum poles. A 2013 American Civil Liberties Union study found that three-quarters of Kentucky's law enforcement agencies a 2013 American Civil Liberties Union study found that three-quarters of Kentucky's law enforcement agencies, including uh, in most larger cities, are using license plate readers. Some members of the Budget and Appropriations Committee said they did not know more cameras were spread throughout the city, and a few expressed interest Thursday in adding more to their districts. The focus on identifying stolen cars and trucks was highlighted by Metro Councilwoman Marilyn Parker, Republican 18th. The word on the street is that Louisville is the carjacking and car theft capital of the world, Parker quipped. What are privacy concerns about license plate readers? Growing numbers of cities and neighborhoods in the U.S. are using the cameras. As the Courier-Journal reported last year, neighborhoods in Louisville that already pay for the camera service, such as Polo Fields and the Woods of St. Thomas, can view the images in a searchable database. The cameras also take pictures of faces, which has led to concerns from some civil liberties and privacy advocates. Piagentini acknowledged he has concerns with civil liberties and Big Brother watching when it comes to the cameras, but he added, I have not received any significant pushback on the use of this technology from my constituents other than to clarify what the technology can and cannot do. Are license plate reading cameras effective in reducing crime? Flock Safety's website says after deploying plate readers, year-over-year -year crime fell 70% in San Marino, California, while a neighborhood in Dayton, Ohio, saw a 43% drop in crime. Independent researchers aren't as sold. Two nonprofit organizations studied law enforcement's use of license plate readers in Piedmont, California, and found that less than 3% of the license plate reader hits led to an investigative lead related to an associated crime. Kentucky's baby box surrender locations saw the first anonymous drop-off in Bowling Green last week. There are 134 active baby boxes in the country in places like Arizona, Ohio, Tennessee, Louisiana, and several other states, according to the founding organization's website. Seven of the 16 baby box locations in Kentucky are housed in, at Louisville fire stations. In 2021, the Kentucky legislature passed the Safe Haven Baby Box Bill, which eliminated the face-to-face -face interaction in the previous law that allowed the drop-off of infants less than 30 days old at fire stations, police departments, or hospitals that are staffed 24 hours a day. The baby boxes are connected to a dispatch system that alerts emergency officials when a baby is put inside and when a child is inside cannot be opened without a key. The child in Bowling Green was the 24th in the country to be surrendered at a baby box. Monica Kelsey, Safe Haven Baby Box founder and CEO, said the baby was dropped off in the last seven days at a Bowling Green fire department. She declined more information due to the anonymous nature of the incident. Fire department staff were able to care for the child in less than 90 seconds, she said. The baby is healthy, the baby is beautiful, the baby is perfect, said Kelsey, who added that officials are now looking to place the child in a forever home. 
The Bowling Green Baby Box has been operational for less than two months. Safe Haven Baby Boxes are installed in the exterior wall of a fire station or hospital. An exterior door automatically locks when a newborn is placed inside, and an interior door lets a medical staff member secure the baby from inside the building. This child was legally, safely, anonymously, and lovingly placed inside of the Safety Haven Box, and that speaks volumes about the parent, Kelsey said. Republican State Rep. Nancy Tate, who sponsored the legislation, told WNKY-TV that it's her goal to have at least one box in every Kentucky county. It makes my heart full to know how supportive this project is, Tate said. Turkey earthquake survivors face despair as rescues wane. NGO estimates financial da- damage at $84 billion. Adayaman, Turkey. Thousands left homeless by a massive earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria a week ago. Packed into crowded tents or lined up in the streets for hot meals Monday, while the desperate search for anyone still alive likely entered its last hours. In nearby southern Hatay province, rescuers cheered and clapped as a 13-year-old boy, identified only by his first name, Khan, was rescued from the rubble 182 hours after the 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck. Thousands of local and overseas teams, including Turkish coal miners and experts aided by sniffer dogs and thermal cameras, are scouring pulverized apartment blocks for signs of life. While stories of near-miraculous rescues have flooded the airwaves in recent days, many broadcast live on Turkish television and beamed around the world, tens of thousands of dead have been found during the same period. Experts say given temperatures that have fallen to 21 degrees Fahrenheit and the total collapse of so many buildings, the window for such rescues is nearly shut. The quake and its aftershocks included a major one nine hours after the initial trembler struck southeastern Turkey and northern Syria on February 6, killing more than 35,000 people and reducing whole swaths of towns and cities inhabited by millions to fragments of concrete and twisted metal. The Turkish Enterprise and Business Confederation, a non-governmental business organization, estimated the financial damage from the quake in Turkey alone was $84.1 billion. The amount was considerably higher than any official estimate so far and was calculated using a statistical comparison with the similarly devastating 1999 quake that hit northwest Turkey. Senior United Nations officials conceded that help to quake victims in Syria had been too slow, and on Monday, Turkey offered to open a second border crossing to assist the international effort. About 160 miles from the epicenter, almost no houses were left standing in the village of Polat, where residents salvaged refrigerators, washing machines, and other goods from wrecked homes. Not enough tents have arrived for the homeless, said survivor Zira Kurukafa, forcing families to share the tents that are available. We sleep in the mud all together with two, even three or four families, said Kurukafa. Turkish authorities said Monday that more than 150,000 survivors have been moved to shelters outside the affected provinces. In the city of Adiyaman, Musa Bozkurt, 25, waited for a vehicle to bring him and others to western Turkey. We're going away, but we have no idea where it will happen when we get there, Buskert said. We have no goal. Even if there was a plan, what good will it be after this hour? I no longer have my father or my uncle. What do I have left? But Fuat Akinsi, a 55-year-old farmer, was reluctant to leave his home for western Turkey, despite the destruction, saying he didn't have the means to live elsewhere and had fields that needed to be tended. Those who have the means are leaving, but we're poor, he said. The government says go and live there a month or two. How do I leave my home? My fields are here. This is my home. How do I leave it behind? Volunteers from across Turkey have mobilized to help millions of survivors, including a group of chefs and restaurant owners who serve traditional foods such as beans and rice and lentil soup to survivors who lined up in the streets of downtown Adayaman. Damage included heritage sites in places like Antakya on the southern coast of Turkey, an important ancient port, an early center of Christianity, historically known as Antioch. Greek Orthodox churches in the region have started charity drives to assist the relief effort and raise funds to rebuild or repair churches. As the scale of the disaster comes into view, sorrow and disbelief have turned into rage over the sense that there's been an ineffective response to the historic disaster. That anger could be a political problem for Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who faces a tough re-election battle in May. Meanwhile, rescue workers, including coal miners who secured salvage tunnels with wooden supports, found a woman alive Monday in the wreckage of a five-story building in Turkey's Gaziantep province. Syrian authorities said a newborn whose mother gave birth while trapped under the rubble of her home was doing well. The baby, Aya, was found hours after the quake, still connected by the umbilical cord to her mother who was dead. She is being breastfed by the wife of the director of the hospital where she's being treated. Such tales have given 
Hope, but Eduardo Reynoso Angulo, a professor at the Institute of Engineering at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, said the likelihood of finding people alive was very, very small now. David Alexander, professor of emergency planning and management at the University College London, agreed, but he added that the odds were not good to begin with. Many of the buildings were so poorly constructed that they collapsed into very small pieces, leaving very few spaces large enough to, for people to survive in, Alexander said. In a frame building of some kind go, if a frame building of some kind goes over, generally speaking, we do find open spaces in a heap of rubble where we can tunnel in, Alexander said. Looking at some of these photographs from Turkey and from Syria, there just aren't the spaces. Wintry conditions further reduce the window for survival. In the cold, the body shivers to keep warm, but that burns a lot of calories, meaning that people also deprived of food will die more quickly, said Dr. Stephanie Leroux, professor of emergency medicine at Virginia Tech. Many in Turkey blame faulty construction for the vast devastation, and authorities have begun targeting contractors allegedly linked with buildings that collapsed. Turkey has introduced construction codes that meet earthquake engineering standards, but experts say the codes are rarely enforced. Turkey's death toll from the quake has exceeded 31,000. Deaths in Syria split between rebel-held areas and government-held areas have risen beyond 3,500, although reports by the government have not been updated in days. China. U.S. balloons flew in airspace. Beijing offers no details about alleged incursions. Beijing. China on Monday said more than 10 U.S. high-altitude balloons have flown in its airspace during the past year without its permission, following Washington's accusation that Beijing operates a fleet of surveillance balloons around the world. The United States denied that it operates any surveillance balloons over China. The Chinese allegation came after the U.S. shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon that had crossed from Alaska to South Carolina, sparking a new crisis in bilateral relations that have spiraled to the lowest level in decades. Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin gave no details about the alleged U.S. balloons, how they had been dealt with, or whether they had government or military links. It is also common for U.S. balloons to illegally enter the airspace of other countries, Wang said at a daily briefing. Since last year, U.S. high-altitude balloons have illegally flown over China's airspace more than 10 times without approval of Chinese authorities. Wang said the U.S. should first reflect on itself and change course rather than smear and instigate a confrontation. China says the balloon shot down by the U.S. was an unmanned airship made for meteorological research that had been blown off course. It has accused the U.S. of overreacting by shooting it down and threatened to take unspecified action in response. In Washington, National Security Council spokesperson Adrienne Watson said Monday that any claim that the U.S. government operates surveillance balloons over China is false. It's China that has a high-altitude surveillance balloon program for intelligence collection, connected to the People's Liberation Army that is used to violate the sovereignty of the United States and over 40 countries across five continents, Watson said. This is the latest example of China scrambling to do damage control. It has repeatedly and wrongly claimed the surveillance balloon it sent over the United States was a weather balloon and to this day has failed to offer any credible explanation for its intrusion into our airspace and the airspace of others. Following the balloon incident, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken canceled a visit to Beijing that many had hoped would put the brakes on the sharp decline in relations over Taiwan, trade, human rights, and threatening Chinese actions in the disputed South China Sea. Also Monday, the Philippines accused a Chinese Coast Guard ship of targeting a Philippine Coast Guard vessel with a military-grade laser and temporary blind, temporarily blinding some of its crew in the South China Sea, calling it a blatant violation of Manila's sovereign rights. Wang said a Philippine Coast Guard vessel had trespassed into Chinese waters without permission on February 6, and the Chinese Coast Guard vessels responded professionally and with restraint. China claims virtually all of the strategic waterways and has been steadily building up its maritime forces and island outposts. China and the Philippines are maintaining communications through diplomatic channels in this regard, Wang said. Adding to tensions, the U.S. fighter jet shot down an unidentified object over Lake Huron on Sunday on orders from President Joe Biden. It was the fourth such downing in eight days in an extraordinary chain of events over U.S. airspace that Pentagon officials believe has no peacetime precedent. The Chinese balloons shot down by the U.S. was, uh, was equipped to de detect and collect intelligence signals as part of a huge military-linked uh, aerial surveillance program that targeted more than 40 countries, the Biden administration declared Thursday, citing imagery from American U-2 spy planes. Part of the reason for the repeated shoot-downs shoot is a heightened alert following the alleged Chinese spy balloon, said General Glenn Van Herc, head of NORAD and the U.S. Northern Command said in a briefing with reporters. The United States has since placed economic restrictions on six Chinese entities it said are linked to Beijing's aerospace programs as part of its response to the incident. 
The U.S. House of Representatives also voted unanimously to condemn China for a brazen violation of U.S. sovereignty and efforts to deceive the international community through false claims about its intelligence collection campaigns. Judge to release parts of Georgia jury report. Efforts to, efforts to overturn 20 election laws scrutinized. A Georgia judge on Monday ordered the partial release later this week of a special grand jury report and efforts by former President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn his 2020 election laws. The report's introduction and conclusion, as well as a section in which grand jurors expressed concerns that some witnesses may have lied under oath, will be released on Thursday, said Fulton County Superior Judge Robert McBurney. Any recommendations on who should or should not be prosecuted will remain secret for now to protect their due process rights, McBurney wrote. McBurney's order came three weeks after hearing arguments from prosecutors who urged the report be kept secret until they decide on charges and a coalition of media organizations which pressed for its release. The release is a, a, is a significant development in one of the several cases that threatened legal jeopardy for the former president as he ramps up a 2024 White House campaign. The special grand jury spent about seven months hearing testimony from witnesses, including high-profile Trump allies, such as attorneys Rudy Giuliani and Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, and high-ranking Georgia officials such as Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and Governor Brian Kemp. McBurney wrote that the report includes recommendations for Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, including a roster of who should or should not uh, be indicted and for what in, in relation to the conduct and aftermath of the 2020 general election in Georgia. Special grand jury did not have the power to issue indictments, and it will ultimately be up to Willis to decide whether to seek indictments from a regular grand jury. The special grand jury's final report was requested by Willis and is meant to inform her investigative decision-making process, McBurney wrote, adding that the panel's investigation was largely controlled by the district attorney and her team was a one-sided exploration. There was very limited due process for people for whom grand jurors recommended charges, McBurney wrote. Some people uh, may not have had the opportunity to appear before the panel, and those who did did not have the right to have their lawyers present or to offer any rebuttal. For that reason, the judge concluded it is not appropriate to release the full report at this time. It is not clear whether or when Willis will present the case to a regular grand jury with the purpose of getting one or more indictments. In a January 24th hearing, she said decisions are imminent but did not elaborate. Trump told the Associated Press last month that he did absolutely nothing wrong. He said he felt very confident that he wouldn't be indicted. At the January hearing, Willis had argued against the immediate release of the report, saying it could violate the rights of potential defendants and negatively affect the ability to prosecute those who may be charged with crimes. We want to make sure that everyone is treated fairly, and we think for future defendants to be treated fairly, it is not appropriate at this time to have this report released, Willis said during the hearing. A group of news organizations, including the AP, argued in favor of releasing the report immediately in full, saying public interest in the report is extraordinary. The discomfort of the prosecuting attorney in disclosing court records isn't enough to make them sealed, said attorney Tom Clyde, representing the media. It has to be significant, identifiable evidence that's going to cause a problem. This concludes excerpts from the Career Journal for Tuesday, February 14, 2023. Your reader has been Daryl Heckman. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. This is Daryl St Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.